Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. And before we start today, uh, a big thank you to Carrie Ward, an emergency medicine pharmacist from Georgia, who uh, pointed out an error in the trauma alert, kind of the part one acute management episode with with Brian Gilbert we released about a month ago. Um, when using sodium bicarb instead of the bullet, right, the 23.4% hypertonic saline, rather than the 50 mLs that I got excited about and said, um, it's, it's actually about 120 mLs, so a little over about two and a half um, amps of the uh, 50 ml sodium bicarb kind of pre-filled syringes. So mistakes happen. I love when I get feedback from everybody. So um, thanks again, Carrie. And we're closing out 2020 with one of the the OG friends of the pod, Dr. Alex Flannery, uh, to discuss research. If you if you're uh, one of the original listeners, who's one of the first guests I've ever had on the um, on the pod, so excited to have him back. Um, and not only discussing research, but specifically practice based research. So. What does this mean? How can our research be integrated into patient care? Um, any resources to keep in our back pocket? And all this and more. So it's going to be an absolute blast today. Uh, now, Alex Flannery is an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy, and his research interests um, intersect at the area of sepsis and acute kidney injury. His practice site is in the medical ICU at UK Healthcare, and he is the current chair of ACCP's Critical Care PRN and the chair of the SECM CPP Research and Scholarship Committee. And in the uh, sprint at the end of 2020, he was uh, very thankful and grateful that he made some time for us today. So Alex, happy holidays, my friend. How are you doing? Hey, Nick. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely. Doing great. Uh, now, we're recording this around Christmas, so I have an important question. So you have to describe to all of us, what's your Christmas setup? Are you a lights guy? Do you have the inflatable decorations? What's what's kind of your, your holiday mood there? Uh, is all the above an option for that one? We have... <laughs> <laughs> we we do have the inflatables. I think um, we do have the lights. We we're a Christmas tree household, so I think we probably have like no less than six Christmas trees probably between us uh, and our kids. And then of course, uh, my oldest is five, so uh, of course we have the the semi obnoxious you know elf on a shelf game kind of going on every day. So trying to find a, uh, a a new place to hide that every night after the first week or so, I'm sure a lot of other parents can relate to the, the fun that that is. <laughs> yeah. Is that a love hate relationship? I don't have kids, but I imagine that that it's entertaining for maybe the first couple of days and then it's uh, a little bit of a hassle. You got it. The first week is fun. After that, it just becomes, it just, it's so chatty. You're like, I can find plenty of hiding spaces. And then the week goes by and you're like, oh my gosh, how did we do this last year? <laughs> Have you forgotten it yet? Have you had to like create an excuse on the fly yet? We said, yeah, we set a reminder because of the so, so last year we just, we forgot like a few times. Like, okay, we'll just make this kind of our, our nighttime alarm clock now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love that you're a holiday guy. Anything to get the mood going around the season, I'm a, I'm a big fan of. 
Uh, and I can't think of, of many people that are better to join us today to kind of discuss practice-based research. And I think as we start, I feel like a logical starting point is defining for us what what is practice-based research? What does that mean? And and what, is all research that, that we conduct as pharmacists considered practice-based research? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. And I think, you know, it, it, to me, I tend to think about it along a spectrum of, of research. And so, you know, on a textbook definition, you know, practice-based research is, is anything that seeks to inform and, and understand the way that, you know, pharmacists practice and things that can help pharmacists use their skills and their talents to improve medication outcomes um, for patients. And so, you know, the spectrum that I tend to think about practice-based research on is any research that looks at what a pharmacist can do. So a new pharmacist service or a new pharmacist intervention very clearly fits in the box of, you know, this is practice-based research because it, it tends to promote the pharmacist and attempts to, you know, put value with what it is that we bring to the table. Um, but it can also be things like you or your team may have a unique practice related to a medication in a particular clinical setting that not a lot of other people do. And so you can compare outcomes to either what you used to do or to what other people in other centers are doing um, to, to sort of highlight your practice. And so that certainly, as it, as it you know, squeaks towards more clinical, that's still practice-based research. Um, you know, and so I, I do think it's a little bit distinct from, you know, the clinical trials and, you know, if you're doing biospecimens or those kinds of things. Um, but I think regardless of, of, you know, whatever label we put on it, using your, your practice site for research can really be a, a strong springboard um, sort of a, across the, the spectrum here that you can participate in. In the year 2020 has, you know, really brought a new definition to the term busy. You know, all of our plates are, are full and probably um, over full at this point. But what is the importance of completing research? Why, why is it so important that we really need to try to carve, you know, a small piece of time to, to try to help conduct and um, participate in, in research at your site? Yeah, that's I, I I think, you know, when we talk about this, I, I usually think about like the institutional perspective and, and the, the personal perspective, because ultimately, I think you have to make both cells to yourself and to your institution that, you know, doing these things is important. And from the, the health system standpoint, I think what you doing practice-based research does is it, it always allows you to be learning. And that's that the buzzword that I'm, I'm sure you probably heard is, you know, a learning healthcare system. And there's there's several, you know, hospitals that are on the, the spectrum of this, you know, sort of the, the pie in the sky, you know, everybody sort of seeks to do what they're doing is, is Vanderbilt with, with their pragmatic trials group. And, you know, Joanna Stallings is a pharmacist in this group. And, you know, they, they have practice questions and they say, well, we'll do cluster randomized trials and they do it. And they not only learn from it and inform their, uh, their practice site by it, but they're also able to inform us as a critical care community in these type of unique study designs. And so I think if we don't, if we don't do practice-based research, I think we run the risk of being stagnant, not only in, in what interventions that we can offer our patients, even in the realm of supportive care, um, but even from the standpoint of, again, going back to looking at the role of the pharmacist and what pharmacists can do, I think one of the things that's always important to come back to, you know, is especially for, for those who may be like, I don't want to do any research. I, I just want to take care of patients. I, I don't want to touch research at all. I think, you know, even like us going on rounds this morning, right, and being able to be on rounds was a product 
of practice-based research when, you know, decades ago, people said we should put pharmacists in the ICU and see how much money they save and see how many adverse drug events they prevent. Um, and so I think we really stand on that. And so to keep growing and not become stagnant, I think that's why it's important for as part of our profession to continue building on that in terms of, of what pharmacists can do, you know, even in the ICU setting. Um, I think for institutions that, you know, have a lot of medication use evaluation sort of going through whatever track they may go through. I think if you're able to take individuals that, you know, are are able to sort of facilitate those kinds of things and comfortable with research and apply those skills, I think you add another sort of layer of rigor um, to the MUE process. And then I think, you know, individually when you're on your service and you're, you know, you're working with your team trying to get them to do something, I think we've all been in the situation where, you know, you show them a study and they're like, well, you know, that's good, but our patients are older. Our patients are usually sicker. And you'd be like, no, no, look, like this, like this went through the rigor of peer review and it's published and, and you know, it's actually our patients. So it is our patients. And so like, you know, how, how does that you know change the game and, and kind of things like that. And so um, I think from the institutional level, but, but again, also at the individual level, um, I, I think there's just a lot of things, um, a lot of benefits to, to continuing to be engaged in, in practice-based research, whether it's just a little bit or whether it's something that, you know, you attempt to make a, um, a, a significant part of, of your, your day-to-day. I love the example that you know, us, all of us who, who round in the ICU, that is a byproduct of practice-based research. I think that's a great way to tie that in. Like really our jobs are kind of, we're here because of that. Um, and so you're bringing, and so by doing that, you're able to bring benefits back to the hospital and yeah, you might be able to even reduce some headaches or, or maybe not arguments, but, but back and forths on rounds a little bit if you're studying them in your patients. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of the people listening here have training programs in their hospitals or health systems, right? Whether it's students, learners, residents. So what's the importance of research when we're thinking about training kind of the future of pharmacy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, even in the same way, like we kind of just talked about, you know, it, hopefully I think individuals, you know, feel compelled at least a, a little bit, you know, to participate in, in some of this practice-based research, but particularly for residents, you know, the, the reality is, is they're going to go through a training program and then, you know, a year from when they finish or so, or two years, they're going to be asked to, you know, precept a residency projects in, in whatever, you know, degree that they might be asked to do that. Um, and so I think we, we do have an obligation that even amidst all the rigor of the training program to also sort of work through with them the, the process of, of good practices for conducting practice-based research. And so, um, you know, I think we've all probably, you know, are aware of just, you know, the graveyard of, of residency projects that exist that, that never go on to get finished. And I think if we don't necessarily, you know, make at least a little bit of research part of the training curriculum, we just run the risk of that graveyard, you know, continuing to expand with, with projects that never go on necessarily to get published. Um, but I think, you know, even for the, again, going back to the individual and the institution, I think, you know, the ideal scenario, I think, is uh, that's a win-win-win is, you know, can you integrate the, the resident or the student, you know, into you or your team's research program in a way that, you know, they're able to have a successful research experience, your group is able to publish your results, your institution is able to benefit from that. Um, and, and so I think when you think about incorporating them and, and the importance of their experiences there, um, that is always the ideal goal um, that I think we try to get to. It's, it's really difficult sometimes, but I think if you can get that win-win-win scenario 
Um, it also shows them the positive, you know, effects of research, which I think not a lot of us have. I mean, I, you know, I remember going through residency. Neither one of my, my residency projects were published. I hated research as a resident because I just thought it was just digging through charts hopelessly, you know, with no end in mind. And so I think the tone we set for them in their research experience can, can be really beneficial for them down the road. Yeah, it's one of those kind of first impressions, except that instead of being with a person, it's with a whole area of your future career. Mm-hmm. Now, if this doesn't already exist, um, because like you described at Vanderbilt and probably at University of Kentucky, I'm guessing there's some infrastructure there that, that helps support and really help research flourish. But how do we develop that infrastructure that supports and creates practice-based research if, if we don't have that you know, in that hospital or health system? Yeah, I think it, it, it is 110% um, a team effort, no matter what you do, because I think everybody is, you know, pressed for time, certainly. I mean, if you think about your day, you know, you spend at least half your day, you know, rounding your patient care, and not, not even counting the meetings and, and the teaching, um, you know, and there's a lot of other demands on our time, too, with professional organizations. Uh, and, and other committee work and, and things like that. So I think time is, is definitely uh, limited. Money is definitely limited in these things. And so I think by, it has to be a team effort, you know, hands down. Um, and I think that includes, you know, for, for practice-based research for pharmacists, you know, it not only includes the pharmacists that would be, you know, in the unit necessarily like data collecting and helping, but are, you know, is there nursing education that's needed, physician champions that are needed? Is it something that, you know, compounding is going to be need, need to be involved? So you need someone from the, you know, the IV room involved. Um, and so I think uh, in a sh- the shortest answer, I think, is it just has to be teamwork. Um, and I think it has to be a group of people that really, you know, buy into it that, that this is an important process, um, that, that we should learn from what we're doing. You know, we can try something out. If it works, great. Like, let's make this part of our practice. If it doesn't, okay, we'll go back to the drawing board because I think, you know, we all realize that we can always do better at what we do. Um, but I think having that buy-in and that desire to, to execute and to try new things and to see how it affects your patients um, is, is what's going to be really important, I think, from, from the infrastructure standpoint, at least, um, of, of executing this, if you will. What are some maybe small steps uh, that are, you know, easy to, to implement to help carve out some time for research? Um, you know, what have maybe, what, what are some strategies that have been successful for you? Because, you know, you're certainly juggling um, lots of different responsibilities in your day-to-day. Yeah, no, I think time is definitely the the hardest thing to come by for this. And so, uh, you know, again, one of the things that it, it, it can't be a one-person show or, or you'll fail instantly. So it, it has to be a, a team effort to go about this. Um, but I think, you know, the the non-sugar-coated answer is, you know, if it's if it's important to, to you or your team, you know, you, you will prioritize things to make it happen. Um, so I think, you know, we're all aware of the, the number of different things that, you know, we're called upon to do outside of just patient care. And so, you know, you may realize that you want to take on a project, but you don't have time. And so it might, it might be, you know, hey, do I need to, you know, rotate off of this committee that I'm on or, you know, whatever it is so that I'm not staying here until 6 p.m. every night. Um, but I think, you know, it's certainly... I, I think when you work on this, I think you certainly have to expect, you know, that if your shift ends at four, that you might end up staying until five to, you know, work on some of these sort of research things, if you will. Um, I think, you know, some places are fortunate enough to 
have some some dedicated time um, for pharmacists off service, whether that's you know funded or not. Um, and I think there's been sort of sort of unique models uh, published from that about how you might be able to do that. I think that's certainly more difficult, you know, when when it's just a group of, of hospital based pharmacists without you know, any type of, of college sort of rotation through there or not. Um, but again, I think that's why why teamwork really has to come into play so that you're, you know, you're sharing the burden of uh, taking on this extra step um, of participating in, in practice-based research. And it sounds like something that might go hand in hand with that is really having buy-in and support from your either pharmacy or even like, you know, critical care or hospital leadership that would support that infrastructure and really support you, um, you know, having time, but also making time for that research as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it, certainly if, if you were to, to seek out, you know, more formal support, whether it was, you know, time and or money for something, um, I think, you know, there's a, a wide sort of degree of, I think, hospital administration support for research across the country with some really good examples and, and, and some examples that, that, you know, hopefully um, can be improved upon. But I mean, I think, you know, the, the aligning your research with themes that are important to pharmacy administration, I think can be really helpful. So whether that's, you know, you have a a new service in your unit that you want to try and you want to study, you know, surrogate outcomes to show that pharmacists doing X, Y, Z um, can benefit. I mean, there was even a, a paper recently about, you know, pharmacist role in, in sleep bundles. And so we have, I think even in the ICU that has a lot of data on pharmacists, there's, there's more things that we can be doing uh, to improve some of these supportive care elements. Um, the other area that I think you, you're probably more likely to get support on is if, you know, you're studying like de-adoption of sort of low-value practices, right? So I, I think of like albumin as like the classic example, right? If you were to try and study that and say, hey, let's figure out how to reduce the utilization of this, right? Or IV Tylenol, probably another one. Too, I think you're going to, you know, if, if, if you want to get support to do that research with the goal of like, let's see if it actually helps with the agreement that if it doesn't, you know, that we're going to actually, our health system is going to act on it. Um, I, I think those are, those are things that are probably much more likely to get support um, from the administration as opposed to like, you know, a, a hypothesis generating project that, you know, you just find interesting necessarily and, and want to look at. Yeah, when you're, when you're able to tie in cost, you'll, you'll, and, and cost savings, that tends to be a, a uh, light to a fly um, in terms of getting some support. I believe that. Most definitely. Now let's kind of dig into the research process here for a second and kind of almost like we're going from the seed to the tree, like that classic, like when we're a kid. Um, and I think all research starts with that initial question or idea. So how do we find a good research idea? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think the, the best ideas for me have really always come from, from rounding and it's questions that I get, you know, that I get frequently that, that I go to the literature for and there's either nothing there, um, or I go there and I see that, you know, there's, there's conflicting studies that are, are relatively low quality of evidence or, or limited to expert opinion. Um, you know, or that maybe even in the guidelines, if you were to look, you know, they're, they're not rated very highly and or the guidelines just left that particular question out because it may not have reached priority for them to include in the particular guideline. Um, so those, those tend to always be sort of good areas for me to start. And then, you know, as I'm kind of developing it, you know, I, I think about, you know, 
is this really valuable for people to know? And I think the perfect study, again, that, you know, win-win scenario is that regardless of whether this is positive or, or a neutral trial or study or whatever it is you're doing, that people would find it interesting. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure everybody remembers, you know, the, the PICO and finer criteria, you know, that were drilled into your head and in evidence-based medicine and things mm-hmm. like that. But I think those are those are really like critical to go back through and think about whether it's a, you know, a feasible and, and an interesting research question. I mean, I've, I've admittedly have, you know, I've pitched ideas to like some of our colleagues here and I'm like, what do you think? And they're like, I, that's not that exciting, dude. And I'm like, okay, well, we won't do it. You know, and that's like such a great first step because it saves you the trouble of, you know, putting all this work into something that, you know, people aren't necessarily going to find interesting. Um, so, it's, you know, making sure that, you know, people will care about the findings either way, I think also helps to sort of make sure that you're on the right track there. And then again, you know, that perfect scenario is that it, it can tie back to your health system in some way. So whether it's a high cost item or whether it's, you know, in an area of focus to your institution, like sedation, if your institution is really focused on sedation right now, you know, can you tie it back into your practice and help? So um, those are things that sort of, at least for me, what's worked and how I've, you know, come across ideas and made sure that they're worth uh, pursuing, you know, given like we talked about that, that time is sometimes limited to do so. And time and time again, I think we're reminded of the importance of um, not doing things individually, right? Having a team, whether it's multidisciplinary or like, you know, pharmacists in your area. And like you just said, when you're having research ideas, running them past your colleagues and having that support where people feel, um, you know, comfortable and encouraged to tell you exactly how they feel, right? Rather than wasting, you know, nine months of research on something that might not be interesting or might not change practice, right? They're able to be honest and we're able to develop things so that our time is is used um in a productive way with some of when we're thinking about research oh absolutely now one question that that comes to mind um because i especially in training programs is you know a lot of the requirements um for research it you know someone will have an mue um or a medication use evaluation as well as like a research project so Explain to us what's the difference between those when, when we're thinking about research ideas, because I think, like you mentioned, a lot of us may have a running list or things that happened from rounds. And I think a lot of them probably fall into those overarching umbrellas. So what's kind of the big difference and how do we how do we differentiate those when we're thinking about our research ideas? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's I mean, it can definitely be a, a gray area for sure. Um, to me, you know, I, when I think about what distinguishes research in an MUE, usually I think of the term generalizability. So can we take what we found in this particular study and does it provide sort of general knowledge about a therapeutic or an area in critical care that, that others could use, even if it's hypothesis generating, that others could use as sort of background research to, to further develop the idea and the field. Um, and then I, I generally think of research, you know, the, the level of, of rigor that you should do in your methods and in your reporting as, as being a lot more robust than an MUE. So an MUE is done, you know, usually on a, on a short number of patients. So anywhere from, you know, you'll read different things, but like 10 to 25 or so, depending on what you're trying to look at. And it's really designed to look at a process. So what is the process for, you know, APTT monitoring, or what is the process for how this particular, uh, you know, it, it drug is ordered, or those kinds of things, or can we, 
you know, are, are we using it not like our protocol and we should provide education? And that's, you know, that's like the, the classic example of, you know, like using an MUE as baseline data and then, you know, educating and then seeing if that improved it. And a lot of the times it does, but that is very unique to your health system, right? Because your barriers for, you know, folks not being educated may be unique to that. And so if you were to go and, and try to publish something that just said education made everything better, you know, it's it's not it's going to have a really hard time getting published because I think it's very very unique to your health system and your protocol and things like that. Um, versus research, which might tend to answer a more global question, right? So, what are the rates of acute kidney injury with this drug versus this drug in a you know medical ICU? Yes, it's your medical ICU, but in general, that knowledge is is sort of more generalizable to critical care and pharmacotherapy than than the MUE would be. Um, again, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've seen MUEs with, where people, you know, collect on 15 patients and say, oh, look, you know, there's really no difference in mortality. But, you know, you could never say that in a peer-reviewed article, right? Because mm -hmm. 15 patients or so, is there's really no justification for, you know, for trying to power a study of that size for mortality. And so I think for me, the distinction really is the, the rigor that you go about sort of conducting and reporting it tends to be a little bit higher with research, but but I always come back to that term, like, do I think this contributes to generalizable knowledge? And that's sort of the distinguishing factor for me when I'm trying to put, you know, labels on one of those two. Now, I think another, I don't know if issue is the right word, um, but something that comes up a lot with research is that when there is a, um, a trial or research that's published that is um, maybe a practice changing, maybe a little controversial, you know, for example, like the HAT therapy with vitamin C and hydrocortisone and thiamine in sepsis came out, you saw institutions left and right doing a lot of research. Um, what is, and, and maybe there's no answer for this, but what is a way to try to reduce a lot of duplicate kind of retrospective single center studies? What are ways that we can be sure that when we're doing research at our institution and things that it is contributing to the literature and not um, kind of duplicating what's already out there in a sense? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I think if that just sort of reeks of 2020 also with, with <laughs> sort of the, the COVID literature too. Um, I mean, I think you're right. There's no good answer. I think we just, I think have to get better at collaborating and and really if you think especially you know just talking about pharmacist you know practice-based research and those kinds of things i i think we operate unfortunately a lot in silos and you know some of that could be because we contribute our you know research ideas and investments to re to our residency programs right so that each resident has a project and things like that but if you think about the number i mean the one that i usually think about is like the the vanxosin nephrotoxicity, like walking through, I forget which meeting it was, you know, several years ago, and like every other poster was a, a vanxosin nephrotoxicity. And if you think about all those individual centers doing, you know, 50 to 100 patient studies, if everyone had kind of been working together, you know, think about the sample size that that would have generated. It would have it would have generated sort of a much more robust estimate of, of whatever effect there is, um, you know, than than you know, fifteen different places doing the same thing. But I mean, I think some duplication is good. You know, again, especially with COVID, you know, some of the things that we sort of see from observational trials sort of don't pan out with RCTs, and I think that's certainly good to do. Um, but I'm with you. There there definitely is a line where it's like, okay, what what are we doing here? With you know, <laughs> this is the twentieth study on this topic. Now, 
having a good idea is just the start because I think, you know, all of us are familiar with papers that we've read that the, the initial idea is awesome and the execution was just flawed from beginning to end. And you don't really know, you know, how to interpret or take away anything from that study. So developing an idea into a true research idea or kind of, you know, developing into a study What's the general process to kind of make sure that this idea turns out into a well thought out research question or study design? Yeah, no, this is um, this definitely hits home because I think, like you said, you can have you know the the best idea, but but executing it um, it can really be challenging depending on sort of what you're what you're trying to do with it, um, and I think it really depends on you know are you are you trying to build a singular project you know or are you trying to build a you know programmatic theme where you sort of say i i really want to become an expert in this topic um you know i think for the individual study you know again i know i know people hate talking about it but like you know making sure that if someone comes to you with an idea that they want to do that like they can literally tell you you know they can fill out the pico thing for you right just like you know we ask our you know, third-year pharmacy students to do that they can do that, and that they can mm-hmm. convince you that you know the finer criteria are met. And again, I I hate to go back to that, but I think it's so important because a lot of the times you might get to you know pulling the data, and you're you're like, oh wait, we don't we don't have a control. Like, what is this really telling me about this? Um, but with executing, I mean, I think for a lot of the practice-based research, you know, it's it's making sure that your the inner that what you want to study is is possible. And I think you know the one of the biggest sources of, of error, I guess you'd call it, or disappointments in studies when you say, oh, we should really look back at, you know, this patient population that got this drug because I think, you know, we all have our biases from practice and then you go to pull it and, you know, it's like 13 patients. And so I, I think that is going to be really difficult to execute uh, for a research idea. And so that might be a situation where you say, hey, maybe we should take this multi-center or we should sort of either, you know, maybe wait until we accrue more numbers or, or tweak it in a different way. Um, but I think making sure that you can execute from the number standpoint, if you're implementing a protocol, you know, have you done a couple run-ins through it to sort of see what the kinks are before you get it worked out? Because again, if you're, let's say you're going to do a run-in of 10 patients, you know, and it takes you five patients to figure out what you're doing, you know, you can basically scrap those five patients. Um, so there's a couple of different things I think, you know, that with, with a study, you know, a singular study question um, that come into play. And then, you know, if you're really trying to build your programmatic theme, you know, like your group wants to become an expert in, you know, sedation practices, you know, that's just going to be one part of a much larger program of research projects, right? And I think that developing that is much more difficult um, because you always have to be thinking about next steps. Like, okay, we'll do this study, but then what's the next step for this study? And so thinking ahead like that, I think um, can sometimes be really difficult. And like the best example of this that I have is uh, Val Adams is an oncology professor at UK. And we had this conversation 10 years ago before, you know, all the push dose and anti-epileptic data had come out, but he was like, you know, push dose, you know, Kepra and status is a, is a great like clinical question, right? Like that could be really beneficial for patients in status, you know, but from like a research program, 
it's a it's a horrible question because like you do the study and you find out if there's a difference and okay like what's next and so I think it really kind of depends on like what you're trying to do whether it's a singular project or whether it's more of like a you know where does this project fit into you know our larger groups you know focus of whatever it, it may be um, like our ID group as an example has like you know five vancomycin projects going on so like trying to piecemeal all of those together and just sort of always have to be thinking about a step forward um, for what you wanted to give you going forward, if you will. What are some of your favorite resources or areas that you will direct people to um, for kind of review um, in terms of study design and things that people can, if they feel uncomfortable or they're really looking to improve, what are, what are some resources that you, that you either like to use or, or you'll recommend when, when people come to you with questions? Yes, yeah, so our, our professional organizations have been, I think, really good about um, like identifying this need and, and putting things out there um, for folks to, to courses to take, if you will, or other programs. So uh, one of the ones that comes to my mind is ASHP uh, has an essential practice-based research kit um, that's really designed for like new preceptors and, and residents that sort of walks you through like a resident project process, and there's some elements of study design in there. Um, ACCP has some academy programming in different areas, and research is one of them, um, that I think is really helpful to talk about, you know, the study designs, and, and you can certainly get feedback in that and have, like, a mentored process. There's other programs within ACCP, too, so if you if you want to do more research, you know, you, you can sort of take, like, the merit, for example, and then if you're if you want to go for federal funding, you can participate in FIT. So there's more mentor-type programs like that. Um, if you want, if you want feedback on an idea or on sort of like a, a draft of a paper, if you will, um, the, C, the SCCM CPP section uh, has a has a a pre-peer review forum where you can like submit your grant or you can submit your paper um, and, and get feedback on that before it even goes out the door anywhere. Um, the CPP section also has like a research forum where you can ask questions on a listserv and get responses back. So if you're like, hey, I, I know I need to use, you know, ventilator-free days, but I'm not really sure what the gold standard is for defining them. What do I do? You know, you can post a question like that. Um, and, and get answers back. So I think luckily there's there's a good amount of resources that are good for like didactic training, but but also to sort of get you questions and feedback at, at a lot of different stages as you go. And that's one of the, I think the, that's one of the best parts of the, you know, pharmacy kind of national organizations is, is we've mentioned you know, throughout, and this is a theme in other episodes as well of, of collaboration and things. And this, when you're a member of, you know, ASHP or ACCP or even SCCM, which is, you know, less true pharmacy based and it's a lot more multidisciplinary, um, that's where you can get those, um, you know, that ability to collaborate and things. And so, and again, not, you know, none of them sponsored this. These are just awesome resources and organizations that, you know, a most of myself included and most of the guests are a part of. And that's why, you know, you're able to develop these um, relationships and networking. And it, it's one of the best parts of all of those. So I really like that you, that you highlighted those organizations. Cause I think that being a part of those, that's in my opinion, one of the biggest benefits of them. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, they've, they've definitely, and they're growing too. Cause I think everybody mm-hmm. kind of realizes that, you know, people need more collaboration and, and need, you know, more training in a lot of times than, than maybe what they got in residency. And so I think there's, there's a good series of steps at like multiple different labels, depending on, you know, what flavor you want and so forth. Now, most of the audience listening, um, I'll assume, um, and I'm going to put myself in that group, have never received any type of funding for their research, right? Most of the time we are submitting projects to that, to, to our local IRB, we're, we're doing all of the things handwritten and then, you know, submitting them to um, either journals or presenting posters and things like that. But when, when we're thinking of research ideas and um, thinking about kind of that study design, when should funding and looking for, for grants and, some, and some, um, some money to help do this, when should that start entering our mind um, in terms of, you know, looking into that whole process? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it, and basically as soon as you thought about it, it's probably too late is the short answer in terms of like a timeline. But, uh, you know, I think especially for, for the, like the, the pharmacy practice based research type that make most folks are involved with. I mean, you know, you generally need to go after funding when there's a skill or equipment or, or result, if you will, that, that you necessarily can't otherwise get. Um, and so a lot of this, we, you're right, we, we can do a lot of this unfunded, particularly if the focus is learning about our healthcare system and what we can do better for patient care and things like that. But when you progress to maybe you want to measure drug levels, you know, you're probably going to need some collaboration from somebody with a lab, whether it's your hospital lab or somebody else. Um, if you get into, you know, a really, really sophisticated statistical analysis that is above somebody on your team's, uh, you know, limits, you're, you're probably going to need some funding for that. Um, and so they're, I, I, you know, they, they always go through a review period. So like I, I said, you know, really the moment that you think you might need funding, you, you probably should start looking for some things uh, about mechanisms that, that might fit. And, and again, you know, we kind of talked about some of the, the pharmacy organizations and sort of tools that they have to review your research. But a lot of those same organizations are also going to have sort of smaller grant funding that may or may not apply to kind of what you want to do. Um, so, and you know, ASHP has had several pharmacy practice-based um, grants in the past that they've, that they've sought out and taken applications for and funded. Um, ACCP has a small grants program as well, um, and, and I know I think is going to have some more stuff coming out uh, this winter that, that may fall into this category too. I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet. Um, there's some small grants through, through SCCM as well. Um, you know, the, the PRN has a member grant. There's student and resident grants, too. The, the Board of Pharmacy Specialties has some small funding like that. Um, there's also in, internal mechanisms at a lot of different places that might be able to fund you for sort of smaller dollars-ish, you know, that would, um, that would get you what you want. I think the, the challenge is with a lot of these is, you know, A, writing a grant is, is very different, you know, than writing a manuscript. Um, and the other challenges, especially if it's an internal mechanism or even some of these others, you know, they're going to want to really clearly see, you know, okay, well, like what's next? Like you would do this project, it's kind of what we talked about with the, you know, the, the programmatic theme, you know, we want to see you do this project, but then like, how does this fit into your, your larger theme and kind of what's next for you? Um, and so that's where, again, that, that idea of, of grant writing, you know, gets, Again, it's very different than writing a manuscript, and and I'm certainly you know still learning this skill myself. But I mean, I think there's 
you do a whole podcast on, you know, like pearls about grants, but I think the best suggestion is just to get a colleague's, get a copy of a colleague's grant. If you're going for one of these fundings for practice-based research, you know, just get a copy of, of a somewhat clinical grant, if you will, from one of your colleagues and just sort of see the things that they did because there's all of these things that are sort of unwritten rules about grantsmanship that you're going to get dinged for, you know, like if you're specific aims are basically dependent on each other, you know, you're likely to get dinged for that. If you don't have preliminary data, which either, you know, supports your hypothesis or even in the case of a a pharmacy practice grant that says, hey, look, we have the infrastructure, you know, to roll out this protocol prospectively because we've done it before, those kinds of things. Um, You know, do you write about pitfalls and alternative ways to do things? Do you put a timeline? Just those kind of things, I think, um, there's just such a learning curve with that. Like, I think the best that, you know, if, if this is one of the first times that you're tackling it, I think just getting a copy of like a somewhat clinical grant and just seeing how they approached it um, would be really beneficial to sort of helping you get set up for one of these foundational applications. And if you have time, like I said, there's even, you know, through the CBP section, there's a pre-peer review for grants that you can do. Um, and then the the research and scholarship um, committee from SCCM CPT also has a grants database too that you can search out. So maybe it's, you know, again, maybe you find some of these foundation things, maybe you find some other agencies um, that fit in line too. So there's a lot of, I think, support here in this endeavor too for the, the pharmacy practice-based research. And just for for the listeners who maybe haven't seen a grant proposal, have had to kind of walk through it. If we had to compare um, grant writing and manuscript writing, what would you say is, is the more challenging of the two? I, you know, I think for me, it's it's grant writing. I've written you know more manuscripts than I have grants at this point in my life but I think a manuscript once you do a couple manuscripts I think the the recipe for a manuscript is pretty is pretty similar right it's like an IRB like you've done you know an IRB or two mm-hmm. you can you know you know where things go in the manuscript and so forth I think each grant is maybe a little bit different in how it's set up and I think with a grant it's just there's this you know, with the manuscript, you're really presenting your findings and maybe you're trying to sell your idea a little bit, um, but you're not like putting on your like used car salesman sales pitch, right? And I'm, I don't mean to offend anybody by that, but like, I feel like that's what a, a grant is a lot of times is you are really selling your idea, yourself, your institution, your infrastructure. Um, and so I think the, the tone of it is just um, a, a little bit more uh, sales pitch like. Um, and, and there's some other challenging things that I, that I personally think are hard. Like, you know, how do you identify pitfalls to your project without saying, well, if this doesn't work, you know, we're host and, and you know, sort of <laughs> tee, tee that up from there. So I, to me, it's, it's the grant writing. Um, but again, I'm sure, you know, like everything, I think the more you do these, the, the more easier it gets. I think the other thing with grants too is it's kind of like baseball. I think they have a, a whole set of these unwritten rules that you don't know about until you actually go through the process. Like I'm sure your grants from your, from your first one to now look different just because you probably learned from other people of unwritten rules on writing them. Is that accurate? Oh yeah, I cringe when I look back at like my first couple grants. That's okay. That's normal. <laughs> <laughs> So statistics, I think just saying the word, I think there were some students or residents who just shuddered a little bit. So 
ultimately, I think sometimes the intimidation of of statistics, pick, picking the right statistical analysis for your research can sometimes be intimidating enough that it, it can make completing research seem too hard or challenging with, with everything going on. So how can we complete research without being a statistics expert? Because obviously, if if you're familiar with all the different tests and study designs, like then that's a pretty easy step for them. But for those who may not be, what, what can we do? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I think, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I think the sort of how everybody is introduced to research is, oh, you should work with a statistician. And that is much easier said than done because a lot of places, you know, you may be able to, A, you may not be able to find a statistician. And if you do, they're going to say, okay, I want X amount of money. And you're just kind of going to laugh at like how much money that, that they want from you for, for this particular task. And so, you know, some of the, the programs that we talked about, uh, and, and especially the, the one that really comes to my mind with statistics is some of the ACCP programming with the academy programming. Um, but they also have like special webinars and series on biostatistics. I think those programs are so helpful because they, they introduce you to designs and they introduce you to just even the basics of you know, independent samples testing or paired samples testing. And, and that's okay um, because you know, I think if you can design a study and, and just make it simpler. I think it's it's better for you. It's better for your readers who are you know reading and going to interpret your results. Um, I mean, we've we've had you know blogs written about some of our stuff that have called it you know statistical voodoo or mumbo jumbo. I can't remember what the <laughs> word is, but I think you know simple a lot of times just convinces people better. Um, you know, assuming that that you can pull that off. Um, so I you know we always try to approach every project like you know can we just keep it simple because I think it. It's okay that way, and in whatever software you use, um, you know there's there's resources that that you can use to sort of figure out how to do some of the the easier tests, if you will. What's your favorite analysis software? I think everybody in research has their favorite kind of hard lined. What what what's your what software do you do you prefer with kind of statistics analysis? Now, there is such a debate, isn't there? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it's a hot <laughs> I, button when when you when you weigh it, in. It is, yeah, I know, I know. Um, so I, you know, I I use Theta. Uh, it's kind of what I was trained on in the classroom. Um, it's got a nice mix of like, you know, you can manually code stuff if needed, but it also has you know some kind of point and click if needed. Um, and then I've, I'm also I use R for some things. Like there's some nice packages that make it a lot easier to do. Um, you know, in R versus theta or vice versa. And then graphics are, are usually a lot better um, in R too. So I think, you know, whatever one you use, just just pick one and, you know, learn. Like if you're just doing, you know, starting to do more research, just pick one, learn it. You know, if you, if you end up doing, you know, uh, you know, more than a couple papers per year, you know, maybe it's worth learning a second one. Just because, like I said, some of the stuff like that I can do in, you know, 10 seconds in Stata, it would take me like, you know, 30 minutes to do an R. And I'm like, how is this worth it? It's just, it's just not. Um, but I think just, you know, again, there's a theme like simpler is better. Just, just get to know one, you know, and then the learning curve of, you know, however long it takes you to learn that one will hopefully pay dividends to you um, as you sort of repeat analyses and things like that. And so most of us, especially any of those who, who are in, who have completed a residency or, or oversee residency training programs have kind of gotten to this point 
right? Where we've developed the study design, we've done the statistics, and then we may even have results and we've presented them to the hospital committee or, you know, within the pharmacy department. But there is a research residency research graveyard that the the papers are piling up of unsubmitted manuscripts. So what are what are strategies or ways that we can implement to avoid that? If if somebody, you know, what advice would you give to somebody who is maybe struggling with with their manuscript submission or feels like they're just never ever going to get this published? Yeah, no, I think um you know, one of the things that, that we do, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is just realize that to actually get a project from start to finish published in a year is just, it, it's possible, but it is like the rare exception. I mean, mm-hmm. I think most of the ones that we've done successfully with residents, for example, I mean, you know, we're usually submitting kind of the fall after the residency year ends. Um, and and that's, that's perfectly okay because you'd rather, you know, make sure that it's good quality before you you start firing away. Um, one of the things that we've done, which I think has helped this, is when we work with, with residents um, on research projects, probably about two or three years, we instituted kind of a new rule, which was thou shall not leave with the data. Because like you said, it just kind of, I think, you know, post-residency is just, is a lot of changes for people with moving and new jobs. And that's kind of where those things kind of go to slow down. Um, so at that point, you know, we usually make sure that we have everything that we need to make sure that whoever's the mentor on the project is continuing to drive it forward um, and not necessarily putting that burden on a resident, you know, that's going out with a new job, new city, new skills to learn and those kinds of things so that, you know, hopefully the, the mentor at that point can help to push it um, at least towards getting it, it ready to, for submission, you know, to a journal. And I think too, that, the manuscript submission process can be very frustrating. And I think I've said it before. I got so frustrated with it. That was ultimately why why I wanted to to start a podcast because it, it can be frustrating. Um, I the, the words of, of one of my first mentors, who's actually a, a UK residency alum, Chris Pachulo, is the every research um, project has the right journal. You just need to find it. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you go about finding what journal you, you try to submit research projects to? Yeah, no, you're, I mean, this submission process can be atrocious. You're right. I mean, luckily there's some journals now that, you know, they'll, they'll sort of, they'll take any format, you know, I think more and more are starting to do this and hopefully more pick up. Cause yeah, I mean, some of them, if you've never submitted a manuscript before, I mean, it can easily take two hours sometimes just to get everything formatted, which is, it can just be painful. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I think finding a journal though, I mean, um, things that I usually think about in this is, you know, what have we done and how likely are we to get scooped on this? Because, you know, I think ideally you'd kind of like to start at the top of the pyramid, you know, not everything has to go to new England, obviously, but, you know, you'd kind of like to start at the top, you know, towards the top of the pyramid and kind of work your way down the impact factor journals as, as you sort of go through the process. Um, But, you know, if, if you know that again, 15 other groups are studying what you're studying, you, you probably have a good chance that, that someone's going to scoop you. So you might sort of shoot for a lower impact factor journal. If you think there's sort of like a lot of pressure coming up, you, you know, like a horse race down the stretch, like there's a lot of other horses coming up on you, you're probably going to shoot for a lower impact factor journal. And I think that's too where like thinking about the timeline 
for the review um, of the journal. So, I mean, the, the, the submission part is frustrating, but what can be equally frustrating is just the review times, especially on some of these. Um, and so, you know, is there like a major RCT that's ongoing, that's wrapping up that like you need to publish before that comes out? Or is there a guideline that's coming out that you need to publish before it comes out? Um, those kinds of things, because I think review times, even within like our pharmacy journals, for example, you know, some of them are, like on point within 14 days, you have a decision. And some of them are like three to four months before you have an initial decision. And so I, I routinely like talk to people like, hey, when was the last time you submitted to, you know, so-and-so? What's their review time like these days? Because I think that can be really important, especially if you're, you're you know, you kind of up against the wire on something. Um, definitely scope too. you know, who do you want to read it? You know, is this a very, very pharmacy centric topic that, you know, belongs in a pharmacy journal or is it general enough to go to a medical subspecialty journal uh, or so forth, you know, and sort of weaving it. And I think even in COVID, I think it's made it, you know, really difficult to publish in ID or critical care journals. And so definitely being creative, kind of like you said, what, what Chris said, you know, there is a home, uh, but definitely you kind of have to sort of think through where it best fits based on just the pressure that journals are getting from all the, the COVID papers as well. And so then ultimately, one of the biggest things with, with practice-based research, research is trying to incorporate this research back into your practice site to help your patients. So how do we what are we able to do to turn research into, you know, kind of maybe protocols or policies or, or, or general guidelines when we're, when we're treating our critically ill patients? Yeah. I mean, I think the first, you know, the, I feel like there's this, a lot of places, there's this big, as soon as you say the word research, sometimes like in a clinical unit, you get this just big kind of like, like, you know, what's going on here. And so I think, you know, with the realization that, you know, a lot of the times research and, and practice change or research and QI, they really blend together quite well. Um, but I think being transparent about what you're doing and making sure that everybody is on board with it, like we kind of talked about with the teamwork and things before, um, is just super critical. So like things that we've had success with are, you know, if we're going to implement a protocol and do anything, you know, prospectively, if you will, you know, it's on our team meeting agenda. Um, sometimes we've put things in our pass off document, if we will, we'll make a column for, you know, whatever intervention that it is, you know, were they eligible for this? Did we do it? You know, X, Y, Z, um, so that we really do like seamlessly integrate research with our day to day care of patients so that when we're looking at the pass off on rounds, like it's this sort of a flag right there, you know, reminding us to do so. Um, and I think, you know, we've a lot of times too, I think you can integrate like data collection into your patient care process as well. And I don't think I mentioned it earlier when you were asking about like, you know, how do you sort of maximize your time with this? But that's another way is if you're doing something, for example, that you're, you know, you're data collecting prospectively on, that's where that prioritization really comes into play. So, you know, let's say like your attendings giving, you know, a sepsis lecture that you've heard 10 times, you know, you could participate in that and teach and, and, and that's valuable, I think, to a certain extent, you know, but you could also spend that time like data collecting on that patient so that you are done with data collection during rounds, you know, if you will, and don't have to do anything after rounds with that. Or, you know, if you've seen them adjust a ventilator, you know, a hundred times before while they go in and adjust the ventilator again, you can use that time to data collect. And so I think we've, we've tried to do that with our practice-based, you know, research, if you will, 
um, in, on the pharmacy side of things just to make sure that it's integrated into patient care. But, but again, I think like the nurses have to know what you're doing. The physicians have to know what you're doing, especially if it's a, a protocol that's going to need, you know, their support or their order to, to implement. So I think, you know, being transparent, but then implementing it into your, you know, sort of just your practice workflow, if you will, in the ways that we talked about, I think can be really helpful to, to like actually executing said idea. You've obviously had some experience with, with research of, of all different types and varieties. What, what are some of the most common pitfalls that you've seen? Things that if, if we would have made, you know, one change or we would have done one thing differently than it, you know, the whole project probably would have ran um, way more smoothly or would have been a, a lot more um, published or po- like a, a lot more polished of a, of a study at the end. Yeah, I think, I mean, the just thinking about common pitfalls. I think the the biggest one that I think we see is, you know, we we have an idea, we think we have tons of patients that we're going to put in here, you know, and then we go through and screen or go through and actually, you know, get the data pool and it ends up being like 25 people and your sample size again of, of you know, if you have a sample size of 25, it's just really difficult to like be powered for anything with, with that kind of sample size. Um, not impossible, but just, just really difficult. So I think that's probably the, the biggest, the issue that I think I've seen the most is, you know, we're really excited about idea, but we pull it and we, we just don't necessarily have the number of patients. And so I think trying to sort of flush that out before you propose a project, especially if it's for a resident, um, I, I think can be really helpful in just making sure that that checkbox is, is selected before you go forward. Um, the other thing is just, you know, sometimes I think the selection bias, even if you know that it's going to be there in observational data, as an example, you know, it, it might just be even stronger than you think it is to the point that, you know, even if you try to propensity match or adjust for whatever you do, it's just too much to overcome. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a, a common pitfall that, that comes up a lot. Um, and then surprisingly, I think the other one is that we talked about with the, the Pico again, I mean, I hate to go back there, but just the control group, you know, I think a lot of the times we say, hey, you know, look, we looked at, you know, this many people that had this and this, but there's just no control group, which just makes it essentially a really large case series technically, um, which is, is also, I think, going to make it difficult to publish um, when, once that time comes. So I think those are probably uh, the, the three biggest ones that I see, I think, with a lot of the, the practice-based research. You know, you, I, I want to highlight something because you, 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 you hate going back to the Pico and finer criteria and things, but I think, I think ultimately it may annoy people or be frustrating, but it, they are the basis of, of all good research ideas, like all good questions or study designs and things meet the Pico and finer criteria. And so, yes, it may be frustrating, but if you, there are a lot of the foundation. So if you try to build a house without the foundation, it's probably going to fall. And that's, and that's the same thing when we're thinking of, of research, that's the foundation. So if you skip that step, you have a chance for you to just have fundamental flaws. So I think as annoying as it may be, understanding those criteria is, is so important, especially if you're going to be involved in creating or mentoring research. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's kind of like, kind of like the Krebs cycle, like you have to talk about it, but I think, you know, it's, I, I used to, when I was program director for the critical care residency, I used to just ask for research ideas rather generically. Um, but I mean, I, you know, towards the end, I got to where I was saying like, 
you have to supply the Pico format for the question, basically. And it is annoying, you're right, but it is, it's kind of like a checklist to make sure that, that all the steps are taken um, as you go through to make sure that, that everything is, is the most robust it can be going forward before you ask a resident, you know, to spend a year on it. So you've you've been involved, I um, I know, with mentoring um, plenty of student and resident research, you know, projects and things, and and I'm sure your your strategy in, in how you mentored and were involved in those projects changed over time as you maybe learned from some mistakes or even successes that might have happened. So what what are some um, successful strategies you've found to really make sure that the research project is going well, but that ultimately the, the the person that you're working with is truly able to kind of take the lead in a sense and not feel like you're taking over their project. Yeah, no, that's a, that's always a tough balance. I think that is for, for me, at least I found it, you know, uniquely there's unique challenges with student research, but, but then with resident research too, that are different. Um, I think with resident research, one of the things that, that I've started to do, which I think works well is I try as soon as they have their idea or that they know they want to work on a project with me, which is hopefully in July, we get the IRB submitted in July and I will basically give them like an old IRB and say, this is how you do it. I think some people, I mean, there is some value in, you know, learning what goes into an IRB, but like once you've done one IRB, especially for like, retrospective observational data, you've done, you know, one IRB and it just, they're very similar formulas throughout. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know for me that I necessarily see that that's a lot of, you know, we should spend a lot of time with that, but that way, you know, the IRB gets done as soon as possible. The data pool gets done as soon as possible because there will inevitably be problems, right? Data can't be pulled or whatever. You may need to recruit others under your team to help with either, you know, finding more data in a manual chart review or stats analysis or whatever it is. But I think if you just sort of like, you know, go from zero to 60 at the start of the year. I think that just gives you some breathing room throughout the year um, to, to execute. And I think, you know, the other thing too is you as the preceptor have to put just as much effort into it in the design phase as you do in the write-up phase. I think, you know, sometimes we're, you know, we might be peer reviewing a manuscript and you're like, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you look at that? And it's like, well, that's not the resident's fault. Like that's our fault for not like telling them that, you know, and correcting them and coaching them that mm-hmm. in the beginning of the year. So I think that part is, is really critical. Um, you know, and certainly, you know, supervising the analysis and, and the write-up and things like that. So I think really just being invested early on, I know that sounds hard to do with everything that goes on in a residency year, but I think that's been, um, the sort of where I've landed at least about how I approach these things right now. Well, and it's, it's one of those, you, you put a little more work up front and it's going to save you tons of work on the back end of, of editing things yeah. or going back and recollecting data, which is truly the absolute worst when research, when you think you're done and you have to go back through every single chart. Yeah, that is, there's not many feelings that are worse than that. <laughs> so uh, one of the the central themes is really um, from from what I've gathered in some of our discussion is collaboration, whether that's with with other um, you know hospitals or health systems, collaboration with other disciplines in your hospital. Um, and, and one of the ways to do that is practice based research networks. So how can we go about creating those? And and what are some examples? I know you highlighted the um, the awesome uh, network with uh, Joanna Stallings at, at Vanderbilt. Um, is there any are there any other good examples? Yeah, there. I mean, especially for for pharmacy and and practice based research, I think um, there used to be. I mean, I don't know. This is 
five years ago, maybe it was uh, a group of, of pharmacists. It was called the the Critical Care Pharmacotherapy Trials Network, um, and this was a group of pharmacists that usually did multi center observational studies. Um, and you know, you had to submit ideas to sort of a steering committee of sorts. And and there were a lot of different sites and people that were signed up around the country that would participate in these projects. That's been folded over into SCCM's Discovery Network. So I think that's still an option um, to pitch your idea to Discovery. I think it's it's more multidisciplinary. It's usually geared towards, you know, um, a, a lot of funded projects, a lot of trials and things like that. Um, it, it's still, there are some studies though too that are, that are observational in nature. So that is definitely an option. Um, the uh, SCCM CPP research and scholarship section also has a network of pharmacists that, that, you know, can help you facilitate research and may even do projects for. Um, and then even within the, the PRN, you know, one of the things that we're working on this year is it is, you know, it's a practice and research network. You know, how can we leverage all of our members, you know, to sort of make sure that we have this pharmacist research network to really contribute um, to observational study? I think I can't tell you the number of, of residents, too, that have suggested that there should be a mechanism where residents can participate in, you know, these multi-center observational type studies. And I think that kind of goes back to, like, when you asked me about why there's so many duplicate studies, I think it's this sort of mindset that everybody has to have their own project that we, we can't collaborate. And I think at times it's almost like a disservice for residents to, to sort of be trained that way because mm -hmm. it's not like that in the real world at all. Right. Um, so I think there's several avenues now, and I think there's definitely a, a needed uh, sentiment for some more opportunities to create these practice-based um, research networks for pharmacists. Now, honestly, I feel like this has been a, a masterclass in terms of, of thinking about research, how, how to prepare um, and have successful practice-based research. But if you, if you had to close out with a couple, um, a couple points you'd like to reemphasize, things that you feel like are so important um, and things that you found successful, what would some of those, those tips and tricks be for the listeners? Yeah, I think the one, I mean, the one resource that that I find myself routinely pointing people toward and using myself a lot. Um, it's called the Equator Network. It's a website and you basically, it takes you there and whatever study design you're doing, there's a link to reporting guidelines on. And so it's really helpful if I'm peer reviewing a, you know, a different type of study than before, or if I'm working on, you know, a, a cohort study or a case control or a meta-analysis, everything is kind of linked there for you. Um, so that you can make sure that you're designing your study in the same way that, you know, you would need to rigorously report your study and those kind of things. So I think that's been really helpful from just a, you know, a, a methodology standpoint. Um, you know, and I think the, the biggest, you know, piece of advice I think about research is just, you know, it, it's hard. Um, I think, you're going to get rejected far more often than you're going to get successes, you know, and it's just, it's kind of, it's just a different mindset, I think a lot of the times. And so it can definitely be discouraging. Um, you know, I, I remember one of our residents one year got like a, a major revision decision from a manuscript and they were really disappointed by it. And I was like, this is great news. Like, <laughs> yes, we have 10 pages of comments, but like, this is how we get there. Um, so just, you know, not giving up, taking the, taking the critiques in strides and, you know, trying not to take anything personal. Um, but just, I think that 
perseverance is really where I think you, you know, you sort of take your ideas and, and go on to execute them to success is that, that and the teamwork. So definitely just don't give up. Um, I think it will always be an uphill uh, battle because I think especially in the ICU world, I mean, there are so many confounders and just things that, that make it much more challenging than even research in a, in a different healthcare setting. Great advice. Yeah, when submitting a manuscript or or having people, you know, go through a research idea or proposal, it's certainly humbling. It'll it'll certainly put you whatever pedestal you may have been on when you submitted it. You, a lot of times, you'll you'll come off of that <laughs> very quickly. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so we have to end the podcast with a couple more holiday questions. I feel like all of us want to know. So the, the, the first one is what's your go-to holiday dessert? What's your favorite? Are you a cookie guy? Do you have like a, a favorite family dessert? What's, what's the, the Flannery household, um, indulging in? Oh, it's just lots of cookies. Fortunately, it's just lots of cookies. So I'm, uh, I'm a sucker for the oatmeal raisin cookies. So oatmeal raisin cookies. I, that was a surprising answer. <laughs> not the not the ice sugar or anything like that. Okay. And yeah, then, I mean, I I uh, I don't discriminate with cookies by any means. I eat everything, but my favorite oatmeal raisin. <laughs> well, the good thing is, I, I feel like your favorites. Like, if there's a cookie tray, I feel like your your favorite's going to be there. I know. So that's, I have that's a good a chance, like a year round celebration. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so uh, our last episode, I asked Ken Uso what his favorite Christmas song was. I feel like I want to ask you, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Favorite Christmas movie? Oh, uh, my the one that plays most often in our house is The Grinch because that's the one my my five year old likes. But my uh, my personal favorite Christmas movie is uh, Polar Express. Now, which Grinch is this? The animated, like the classic one, or the updated, like live action one? That's that's uh, the Jim Carrey. Uh- Oh, he's all about the Jim Carrey one. He thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I, in in the Peters household, it is Christmas Vacation is it is a must play the day after Thanksgiving. Watch it every year. I th- that's that's the favorite <laughs> over here. Well, Alex, it's always great talking to and and especially learning from you. Gosh, everyone, that was an unbelievable advice and things you gave. And uh, for those wondering. Alex is on Twitter, um, and his his handle is at a Flannery Farm D. So, Alex, really, th- thanks again for for joining us, and and really appreciate your time and everything. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. Merry Christmas. Now, as we close out 2020, I just want to say, you know, a thank you to everybody. Gosh, can you believe the end is near? Some of us are um, have been able to get vaccines, and so it's. It, it's fi- It's great to see some light at the end of this, what's been a pretty dark tunnel. Um, so again, just appreciate everybody for all their listening and support. Be kind to one another and definitely, um, you know, stay safe, but, you know, virtually visit all your friends and families around the holidays. Um, as always, definitely send me feedback, positive or negative, as well as any um, guest or topic ideas. Um, Twitter at pharmacy to dose or via uh, email. That's pharmacy to dose, T-O to dose at gmail.com. Um, and on our website, as well as in the show descriptions, um, you'll find, you know, reference lists as well as show notes that kind of highlight a few of these things that we've talked about. Um, and until next time in 2021, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.